We are in part two of a series we've titled Advent. If you're not familiar with what Advent is, here's the actual definition to help you out. Advent is the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And of course, Christmas time is the advent or the arrival of God on the scene. Now, there are three, if you will, arrivals um, throughout Scripture, throughout really history, main arrivals. We all have some type of thing we're preparing for, for some type of arrival. Maybe you're like the Griswolds, and you're preparing for all your family to come visit your house, right? And then you're going to freak out and not get a Christmas bonus and all that, right? So we're always preparing for some kind of arrival, but there's three main arrivals, really. The introduction, the creation, God arrives, creates everything. And then in Scripture, we kind of mess it up. There's called the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And we're the ones that messed up this good thing. And God continues to grow in redemption. It says, until the culmination of time, then he arrives on earth again in the form of a baby. And that's what, obviously, we celebrate on Christmas. But as we're talking about in this series, there's another arrival in one day This same God will return, and we await that arrival. We celebrate in Christmas the arrival of God to change our lives from the inside out, to remove sin and our barrier between God and us and God and us and man and us and creation and us and ourselves. This is what God came to do, and we get to celebrate that in Christmas and be excited and give gifts because the ultimate gift giver came and gave us his very life. But one day there will be another advent, another arrival. And every time we come together in Christmas, we need to be reminded of the whole story of God. Last week we talked about pre- preparation and being prepared for the, revi- uh, the revival, the arrival, that too, the arrival of God and the arrival of Christmas. So we prepare our hearts a little bit more. We're going to continue with that same thing, but using a different word, not just preparation, but procrastination. Any procrastinators up in here? Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Say it loud. Say it proud. Some of you were late to raise your hand. So it was perfect. So perfect. What is procrastination? Procrastination is the action of delaying or postponing something. Doesn't sound so bad, does it? I mean, if you're intentionally postponing it. But most of us aren't, and we all have things that we procrastinate about. So the question is, what do you procrastinate about? Typically, there's something really important or big, and we've got to take care of it, but We don't want to do it. We feel overwhelmed. We've all felt that feeling. Some of you are super type A personality and check check mark, check mark. Like, yeah, I don't procrastinate. I don't do any of that. I'm ready before anything. Like some of you have the mentality, but most of us probably have something that we procrastinate. Experts will say procrastination is, is merely really just a reaction to stress and anxiety because we're already stressed and overwhelmed maybe with emotional things or things going on that we have this big project or we have a home thing that we've got to do and we just never get around to it. My father-in-law is an electrician and I was helping him my first few months married to my wife and I'm a horrible electrician, horrible. I almost died a few times, I'm still here. Um, But I worked with him and what was interesting about him, a great electrician, worked all around the city, but oftentimes he would go home and his wife would be like, hey, can you do this? And he's like, nah, I'm kind of tired of doing that. I don't want to do that anymore. And things in the house, you procrastinate on. And all of us can think of things maybe in our house, 
Maybe if you're at school or just wrapping up school, next semester, you've got this essay due, you've got a paper due, you have something. And a lot of you wait to the last minute and then pull the all-nighters. Anybody want to be real up in here and say, I've done that? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Jasmine just graduated. Yeah. Right. We've done that, and we don't, put, we don't put the deadlines on ourselves. We don't get that. That's the deadline, so I'm just going to wait till the last minute and get to it. And sometimes that works. Jasmine graduated. Congratulations. You, you did it. You did it. It worked for you, but there's some things that it can work sometimes, but oftentimes it doesn't. Maybe you've procrastinated savings or retirement plan or your health. And you're just like, I'll get to it. I'll go to the doctor. Like one day I'd like to actually see. I'll go to an optometrist, but I don't really have time to see well right now. You know, we procrastinate so many things in life. And typically it's because of stress, because of anxiety, because of everything that's going on. But we do the things we really, really value. We prepare for the things we really, really value. I mean, I've been to a lot of weddings and there's not a lot of procrastination going. Maybe there's a few last minute details, but they've been planning out for a long time. I've only been to one wedding that it was a little bit like, oh yeah, we don't have a cake. Hey, can the church make some pies? And we did. Literally showed up our church in Avalon, made a bunch of pies for this wedding for this beautiful couple and helped them out. But most of the times, things we really value and love and are thinking about, we are preparing for and getting help for. The Bible talks a lot about this concept of preparing and then people that procrastinate and wait to the last minute, but it doesn't always work out when we do that. If you'll turn to your Bible, to Matthew chapter 25, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13 today, and it's a parable. In fact, in the context of this, this is towards the end of Jesus' life and teaching, and he's teaching people getting ready to go to the cross And he's giving some last teachings. And one of his teachings is to tell people to be prepared because you don't know the hour or the day that I'm going to arrive, that the Advent's going to happen, the capital A Advent arrival is going to happen. You need to prepare your heart. And he begins to tell them, in the last days, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and pestilence and all of these things are going to happen because the earth is going to be at a point, just like a woman giving ready to have a, a baby. There's going to be these child pangs and the earth is going to feel it up to this point. Know that when those things are happening, my arrival is imminent. It's coming. And he begins to tell, he actually tells five parables. So if you want some homework, read Matthew 24, read Matthew 25. And it's interesting watching how each parable kind of builds on itself. A parable is most simple terms as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning or a kingdom meaning. And Jesus is constantly giving these parables to help tell a story of the kingdom to come or how God really is, how God's kingdom functions. And he does it in story, not necessarily in law and code and policy, but in story because he's trying to capture our mind and our imagination. And he's saying, here's some stories. Here's how's the, how the kingdom of God is. And he'll so tell a parable like there's two men in a field and one will vanish while you're working. It'll be like the times of Noah where people were marrying and getting married and then I'm just going to come like a thief in the night. Not that he's sneaky, but people just were going about their business and here I am. And he culminates and he gets to this parable in Matthew chapter 25 that we're going to hit today. And it says this. Then... 
The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out, verse 9. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, Open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We can read this and you can read through some of these parables, but it's really hard to understand what Jesus is talking about without some context. Because we are very different in our ceremonies, in our weddings, in our marriage than they were in first century Israel. Very, very different. I mean, so different, almost opposites in a lot of ways. For instance, our weddings nowadays, I mean, are all about the bride, right? And the lady said, uh-huh, right, all about the bride. I, I know, I did a wedding when I was 25 years old. In Nashville, the Nashville strings are playing. Vince Gill and Amy Grant are singing in harmony. And the doors open up and the bride comes down and the groom's crying. And I'm sitting here going, what am I doing here? <laughs> it's all about the bride. The focus is on the bride. We stand for the bride. And, and I'm not saying that's bad. So don't hear what I'm not saying. That's good. But one of the main reasons that's true is because in our customs, the bride's family is the one paying for the wedding. So it's going to be all about the bride. You know what I'm saying? Like the money's going there. And, and the dude is just like, yeah, you're here, right? And we're thankful that you're standing there. Don't fall over. That's like his only thing, right? Don't knock your knees. Don't fall. It's all about the bride. Actually, in Jewish customs, it was more about the groom. And here's why. In Jewish customs, you would start not with a marriage license or even an engagement like we do engagement, like a promise that we are going to get married. But it's different than a promise. It was more of a covenant, and it would be a thing called betrothed. If you've ever read the Christmas story, like the real Christmas story, right, where Joseph and Mary are betrothed, there's already paperwork, they're already committed, they've already had some form of celebration, but they haven't consummated the, 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 the marriage yet in a big formal wedding because that's not what they do. So they would be betrothed. And in fact, that is so secure, you would have to get papers of divorce, which Joseph was ready to do to Mary, if you know the story, when he found out she was pregnant. She's like, hey, I'm pregnant. He's like, okay, uh, bye. And she's like, well, no, God did it. And he's like, okay, uh, bye, right? And so he needed a dream and an angel to tell which you would too, okay? If anybody does this to you, right, go on Mari Povich or something, and it's, I am not the father. Like, figure this thing out. 
In that time, though, they were betrothed, so you would need papers to divorce because they were already really committed. Their families, their life, this is happening. We just haven't consummated and have the wedding feast yet. And this is applicable. You're going to learn something here because what would happen is during the betrothal, when they were betrothed, they would have families, they'd typically be at the bride's house, and they would have a party, with a small party with friends and family, and they're excited, kind of like an engagement party. But then they would take it to the streets, and they would have this processional, and they would be celebrating through the streets, but it would celebrate, sometimes it would last a day, sometimes it would last a week, I mean, it could last a while, depending on the groom, and here's why. At one point, the groom would then go back to his father's house, because typically in that time, they would have the woman join the man's home and the father's home, and the father would have his son. His son would start to prepare a room and a place. So they would maybe have a, a house like this, have multiple rooms, and the son would have to go back. And maybe he'd done some preparation, but he needs to come back and do final preparation, build what he needs to build, because now they are welcoming in a new member into their home. So she's getting a new identity. She's getting gifts. She's going from this family to this family. This is why oftentimes the groom would also, during the being betrothed, he would have to give a dowry. There was an amount of money or a figure he would give based on his family's wealth or what he could afford. And here's why. Because when the, when the father had like a daughter, they were somewhat disappointed, okay, not just because it was a very paternal, patriarchal type of society, although it was, but also because customarily, you knew once your daughter married, she's leaving your house. And everything, I mean, your household income, it was a farming, agricultural area. I mean, everything you had, the more people, the more sons, the bigger you were, the more wealth you could accrue because you had more people to work the land. And so knowing I have a daughter, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to give her up. Darn it. If I have a son, yes, I'm going to inherit somebody, a new identity he's going to bring into our house. And this is my father's house, and there's many rooms, and the son comes and starts to prepare it and brings her in. So they've got this processional. They're waiting now for the groom because one day, and they don't know the time. It depends on how long it takes to prepare the house for them to live in. There's a lot of factors. A lot of times the longer it take, took is because it was a bigger home or because the uh, groom and their, his parents had a lot of money and so they could just keep the party going. But the people would have to wait and wait and wait. But they're looking over the horizon because one day that groom is going to come and then they're going to go, oh, he's here. And it's all about the groom. And they come and they meet and they have the wedding and they have a feast and it's a joyous time. This is why Jesus will say things like, you don't know the hour or time. Even the son doesn't know the hour because it's the father that goes, yeah, everything's ready, go. And one day he's gonna return. He doesn't even know when, at least when he was on the earth at the time, but we are awaiting. It's all symbolic of this marriage ceremony. Knowing that background, let's, let's think about this as well. They would often have, I forgot about this picture. We have a picture of this, this lamp that they would have. 
And then the lamp, they would have this wick here that after a while, if you burn it with oil, you put oil in there, you would hold it, and it had this wick. After a while, it would burn up and have soot, so they'd have to cut it, trim it, get it extended a little bit so it continued to burn. This one on the right is more than likely, more like what these bridesmaids, these ten virgins, would have had waiting for the groom. And they've got this, typically it would be like on a pole and holding it up a little bit higher like a torch. And they would be waiting through the night, looking and waiting, knowing, hey, we are here. The torch is on. We're available. So that when the groom comes, he's not wondering where everybody is, but he could even see if it was at night. Let's check out and read this again now that we have some context. Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Now, some people are like, oh, so the Bible's all about polygamy, right? No. These are like ten bridesmaids, ten virgins, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So again, they're on their way. They're waiting for him. They're looking for him. Five of them were foolish. That's a very nice word. The Greek word actually is where we get the word moron. True story. Five of them were stupid. Five of them were wise or sensible. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. They weren't prepared. Maybe they procrastinated. Yeah, whatever. It'll be fine. It's not going to take very long. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. They got tired. And that's not necessarily bad. We're going to get tired. We're going to get weary. But are we prepared? Verse 6. But at midnight, which is not common, but this is what happened. At midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins, oh my gosh, whoops, rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy yourselves. Well, it's midnight. There's, there's really not a 7-Eleven selling oil in the middle of the night at this point. And so they would have to go to family's houses or go all the way back home. They'd, they weren't prepared. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. The door was shut because everybody that was ready, that they thought was a part of the feast, was already there because they were alert and ready. Afterward, the other virgins came also knocking on the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. These are wedding crashers at this point. You know, the people that like the free food and like the party, like to hang out, but don't really know anybody, don't know the bride, don't, no, none, nobody's in here done that, right? We do have an altar if you have, like, there's something expensive to do weddings. And people that come in and crash it, those are the people you want to bounce, right? You want to get out. And at this point, the groom's saying, I don't know you, I don't recognize you, and to me, because you weren't ready, it was a big deal. You cannot come in. And Jesus ends this parable by saying, 
watch or keep alert, therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour of advent, of the arrival, of when I'm going to return. Now, it's interesting thinking about how harsh that sounds because Jesus is saying, okay, if you aren't ready, you can't come in. And it seems like, man, wouldn't the, the bride be like, hey, let my friends in. You know, they made a mistake. And yet he's trying to put a point across that all the work and everything that I did to prepare this place, all the money, all the sacrifice that it took, you didn't value me enough. You don't now come and just get my stuff. You can't just be a part of the party. The party is about a person. The party is about the groom. And you weren't alert enough about that, maybe never were. And so no, you can't come in. And his warning is stay alert, stay aware, stay woke about what life is about and who life is about. See, many times we prepare for the things we value the most. And we procrastinate things, a lot of times that are valuable, but man, we would really do them and figure out how to do them if it was something that our life was all about. And when we're thinking about Christmas holiday and we're thinking about all of these kind of things and the, the arrival of baby Jesus, it's a beautiful thing. And we're thinking about preparing our hearts, make him room. We sing these songs. But what does that look like? What does that mean? Sometimes it's taking personal inventory to say, what do I really value? And do I value this coming king that I should be awaiting and thinking about in this time to process and give my life to? Am I expectant of this king coming to make a new kingdom? Well, I would say a lot of times we don't put stock and value into that. We will put stock and value into things in this earth and the things right now. For instance, if you've seen the National Geographic documentary called Doomsday Preppers, anybody seen these guys? Have you seen this documentary? Now, if you're one of those, God bless you, it's great. You're on top of things way more than we are, okay? So I'm not here to offend you. But it is interesting that six, more than 68 million American doomsday preppers are estimated to have purchased survival gear in light of recent political events or natural disasters. People are going, don't be procrastinating that. I need to be ready. I need my bunker. Like, I need to be able to do these. I was watching, like, a quick clip of a couple that created, like, the bunker, and, and, and it, it could give them, like, a certain amount of air for a year or whatever and all the kind of things to be ready because what if something happened? Like, we've got to preserve. We've got to save the earth. We've got to be ready. And, and I think Jesus would say, well, that's great. Now, let's, let's use that effort. And let's put it over here into now and today. But see, we don't do that, but for good reason. Sometimes for good reason. A wrong reason, but it could be a good reason. And one of the reasons I think is we don't really think about an afterlife or heaven or what's coming next because what we've been taught is that, you know, you're just going to die and then you're going to go to this place that's like super white and really clean. And, and, and then there's going to be like these harps that you're going to play. And I mean... 
harp, that'd be cool to learn how to play it, but there's only so long you can play a harp. And after a million years, like, forget that. My fingers are bleeding. This is horrible. Like, it's not as bad as hell, but close. So, like, this is the idea we have with, like, a coming kingdom and a heaven. Why prepare for that? Who cares? Like, I have real problems now. I got 99 problems, and heaven ain't one of them, right? Like, I got real things going on, so I'm going to prepare for that and my survival and my life. And yet it's interesting that you see documentaries and people talking to people on their deathbed and saying, it's not that I wish I had accrued more wealth or more income or more things, but it's the people and it's the relationship. And I wish I would have been a better dad and spent more time with my kids. And it's the actual relational thing. I wish I wouldn't have procrastinated on that because I thought I had that forever and I was going after this. And even in light of eternity on our deathbed, we do start to think about it. But even then, it's like, okay, heaven now is, heaven sounds good now because I'm just not going to feel bad anymore. What about today? If you're healthy and fine, you've got some problems, you've got some things, why even think about this arrival? Here's, I'll tell you why. The Bible actually says in the parable right after this, if you continue to read, Jesus gives this parable of these people that have talents or gold. And depending on what they do with them is depending on the reward. And the one that does a lot and does well with them, he says, he says this, this is cool. When you die, when everything, when I arrive, when I come back, here's what it's going to be. Like, here's what the kingdom. He says, you were faithful with what I gave you, and you did even more. And he says this, enter into my joy. And now, listen, I'm going to give you even more responsibility. Telling us what? Heaven and the kingdom of God and the next life and the arrival of Jesus isn't going to bring this arrival of like this weird world that we're really not interested in. It's actually going to bring a kingdom and most importantly, a king that can rule and reign that is good and just and bring something into our world. That if you are an engineer today, I believe you're going to use those same engineering abilities. You're not going to become immediately omniscient. You're going to continue to grow. I think we're still going to have all the languages. And I think you're going to have to learn Mandarin. Even if it takes you a million years, you're going to learn Mandarin. We're going to continue to learn. We're going to continue to grow because our job is to glorify God in all the earth, in all of the galaxy, in all of the universe. And we are going to explore and go, but not with the effects of sin and death and disease and decay and the earth fighting against us. Now it's a new earth, a new kingdom. That's something to prepare for. That's something to start thinking about now. And how is my life now living in this kingdom that one day the king will arrive and show up and I'll give an account and we will work this kingdom together. Now all of a sudden, whoo, I like that story because it gives me something today to strive for and not just a coming kingdom, but a groom and a king that I want to be ready for, that I want to be awoke alert and ready for. My, one of my favorite authors, you guys know, C.S. Lewis. He has this book called Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read it, it's great. Weird season of Christmas to read it, but read it. Um, in the Screwtape Letters, this is, this, just to know what it is, you can pull, put up the, the first slide there for me so that everybody can see. The Screwtape Letters comprises of about 31 letters and it's written by a senior demon. So it's written kind of from like the evil perspective. And his name is Screwtape. And he's writing this to his nephew, Wormwood. 
who's a younger and less experienced demon. And that demon is charged with guiding a man called the patient toward our father below. He's trying to guide him towards the enemy, the devil. But they would call God the enemy. So when, when I'm going to read a section here, you're going to see kind of that symbolism. So you've got to think in this way. I found this. This is more like a parable of this. This isn't actually in the book. But I thought it was beautiful and worth thinking about as we're preparing for the arrival and making the most of this season. Look what it says. says this. My dear Wormwood, I received your last letter in which you expressed a number of fears over your patience celebration of those seasons of the year that Christians call Advent and Christmas, and to which our Father below only refers to you, usually in disgust, as the invasion. I must admit, Wormwood, I could not help but laugh at how fearful you seemed at this prospect. Not that these particular seasons shouldn't strike fear in every young fiend like yourself when rightly understood. But therein lies our advantage when it comes to so many Christians. There's much they misunderstand or never consider at all. Devil forbid they ever grasp the real implications of these seasons. So, since you asked how best to handle this current, and I believe you called it dreaded situation, let me offer three heinous suggestions that even those in hell's high command would not question. If you can su succeed in the first two, the third may not even be necessary. But if worse comes to worse, the third suggestion is always at your disposal, and it is effective. Because it gives your patients the illusion he's celebrating this season, when in fact you're helping him miss the point first. Try keeping the patient sufficiently distracted. This is important, Wormwood, because the enemy wants him to ponder and meditate on that awful truth. I shudder even to write it, the incarnation. You must do all you can to prevent this from happening, and distraction is one of your deadliest weapons during these seasons. I know you've failed miserably in similar efforts in the past and have paid dearly for it, but there are so many potential means for distraction during this one month that even you should find this task easy. So keep him overly committed to all sorts of things. Yes, even good things. Make sure he goes to every party and feels obligated to go out and purchase a gift for each one. Make sure he attends concerts and dinners and charity events. If his calendar isn't full, you've failed. Exhaust him. Tire him out in any way you can. Keep him going and doing. And if that doesn't work, distract him with entertainment and other mindless tricks. Just don't give him time and space to consider what these seasons are actually meant to celebrate. If that doesn't work for you, then try keeping his celebrations merely sentimental. It's no use trying to keep him from celebrating these seasons entirely. That simply will not work, just ask Scabtree. But if you can make him nothing more than sentimental and nostalgic, then you will have prevented him from reflecting on the real meaning of the enemy's actions. So by all means, let him sing and be merry. Hell knows we have made good use of those kind of things just as much as we have misery and gloom. But make sure he only sings and reflects on things like sleigh rides and silver bells and snowfall and decorations and family gatherings, things every one of his fellow creatures can sing about and celebrate. And if you can make him shed a sentimental tear while he sings about them, even better. Those kinds of songs are quite harmless in the eyes of hell. 
What he must keep, be kept from singing, however, are all those carols that make hell tremble because they are filled with the truths we can't deny, truths about who the enemy is and what he has done to triumph over our Father below. When our, the, your patience celebration begins to include such songs or reflections on such themes, you are in real and serious danger. Even so, you are not without one last method of attack. If all else fails, try keeping the enemy's story what we call the bad news, limited to the invasion. It is bad enough that your patient thinks on this at all, but realize it could be worse. So if you foolishly allow him to focus his attention on the invasion, then at least be sure to let the story go on further, no further in his mind. All those bipeds the enemy has created seem to love babies. So make him think bad news is nothing more than a story about a baby. Something cute and sweet, but not serious and significant. Find a way to keep the story in Bethlehem. You can even let him keep his manger scenes with all the animals present. Just let it go no farther. Make sure he keeps thinking of the enemy only as a child. Don't let him think about the enemy as a man or what he did to some of our fiendish friends or how he humiliated all hell when he rose again. You can see the manger in your patient's thinking as long as you divorce it from the cross and the empty tomb. But once he begins to recognize there's more to the story of the bad news than just the invasion, especially if he thinks about the great defeat, then he will turn in gratitude to the enemy. And I sincerely hope for your sake, especially this does not happen, your affectionate Uncle Screwtape. In a season where we're thinking about what we prepare the most for, think about what that groom did and how he's preparing a place, the life and death that it took Jesus and is taking him and his kingdom and his church to go through. And listen, we can all sit here and be sad Maybe think, man, I've procrastinated. I'm no good. I can't do this. I've already messed up or I'm just going to do the same thing. Like all of us can have the excuses and yet today is a new day and a fresh day. And one of my favorite things comes from this song that we just got done singing where we're saying there's nothing I want more than you. There's nothing I'm holding back from you. And I don't know about you. But when I sing that, sometimes I go, is that true? And it's convicting and sometimes it's hard to sing. But as I was singing it this morning, the Lord said, I'm singing that over you. There's nothing I've withheld from you. I want you. I came here for you. I didn't need to be saved. You did. And now all of a sudden I could say, there's nothing I want more, God. Not that I love, but that he first loved me. That's what makes me want to prepare for his arrival. For his arrival to speak to me right now. And the one day arrival where I can say, I'm alert, I'm ready, I've been waiting. Let's do this. Let's feast. Why don't you stay to your feet? I want to ask the worship team to come. And we're going to sing this worship song. And I want you to sing it to God, but also as if he's singing it over you. And think about what it takes the groom and what it took him to prepare us and what he's doing to prepare you now for his arrival. Father, we love you. We need you. 
we recognize, we prepare our heart to make you room. In Jesus' name, amen.